Friend, the gay community is duping you. Neighbor, the gay Christian movement is a farce. Nobody buys it. But in order to actually have strong words, you've got to have a strong relationship, preferably a mug of strong coffee right in front of you, and a good box of Kleenex. It's going to get messy. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the Word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. Hey there, welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour and I'm your co-host. As you know, we've wrapped up our series on 1 Peter, A Living Hope in Hopeless Times, and we recently aired our very first Ask Dr. E episode. So if you haven't checked it out, I can't encourage you enough. I loved putting this together. We've gotten a ton of fun feedback. And remember, if you've got a question for Michael, you can call us at 615-281-9694. We'll make sure that's in the podcast notes. You can just click on it and leave us a voicemail. Speaking of calling in, we've got several more episodes that we are currently working on to air before 2018 is over which believe it or not, this year is going to be over before we know it. But one of those episodes is an interview with our friend Cameron Doolittle about his book, Joy Giving. And Cameron and Michael have a whole conversation about what it looks like to live generously. How do we give our money, our time, our resources? And we would like to include some questions, a portion of Ask Dr. E on that episode, specifically about money. So if you've got questions about tithing, how we should handle our money from a biblical perspective, anything in that line, call us 615-281-9694, and we'd love to include your question on that show. Now, today, we begin a two-parter, really in a larger conversation of biblical context and homosexuality. Michael always asks, should we be, quote, engaging the homosexual culture? What does that look like? And we have two friends and experts on the show over the next two weeks, today being Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria has been on the show before, and I can't encourage you enough to go back and listen to her first couple of episodes. Rosaria shares the story of her going from a committed lesbian relationship, really an activist in the gay community, to coming to know Christ because of her neighbor, who she shared over 200 meals with over the course of about two years. And through their relationship, she comes to know the Lord. She's going to talk about that a little bit in this episode. But her most recent book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, is what she and Michael will be talking about today. Welcome to the broadcast today. It's my honor and delight to have Dr. Rosario Butterfield back on the In Context podcast. Thanks for joining us, Rosario. Oh, thank you, Michael. I am delighted to be with you today. Now, now for, for our friends who may not know a little bit of your background, Rosario, you were minding your own business teaching uh, in Syracuse, <laughs> New York, and uh, 
being a scholar and a student of, uh, and, you know, doing your own thing and something happened to you. Well, you're hilarious because you're probably the only person, the only human being on the planet who would have described me in that way. <laughs> um, in spite of what Michael is 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 trying to <laughs> trying to get you you good fine people to believe, um, uh, I, I that is just not true. Um, so I I was happily committed in a lesbian relationship and uh, a professor at Syracuse University, and the um, the co-author of the first domestic partnership policy, which, which is the forerunner to gay marriage. Um, I, I was in many ways a gay rights activist, and I was that because I genuinely believed that that, was, uh, that that kind of diversity, that the diversity of sexual expression was foundational to civilization and to human connection. So I was a true believer before I was a true believer. And um, and I don't think I was minding my own business. I think I was trying to change the world, Michael. But but something <laughs> something happened, and that is that my neighbor, who uh, is a Christian pastor, um, he's retired now. His name is Ken Smith. He's ninety two years old, and he is still alive and very much alive and in my life, which I I thank God for. Um, but he and his wife, Floyd, became my friends. And through the process of two years and probably 200 meals at their house um, or more, many conversations, much wrestling with scripture, um, the word of God got to be bigger inside me than, than I. And, um, and I committed my life to Jesus. And when that happened, everything changed and nothing changed. And, um, and I write about that in a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. What I say in that book is that when I came to Christ, I didn't stop feeling like a lesbian, but I knew that a lot of things had to change. And um, the church that the Lord placed me in lived like a family of God, and they they incorporated they incorporated me into that family. And so those were hard years. Those were good years. I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. Um, but it was real and powerful and life-changing. And over time, all kinds of other things changed for me by God's grace. So, um, and I suspect there are millions of people like me out there who were converted under a hospitality ministry. And so here we are. When you think back on those 200 plus meals, yeah. <laughs> um, were there some defining points? I mean, obviously, yeah. Ken and Floyd loved you. They Indeed. welcomed you. Yeah. They weren't arguing or no. you know, picking a fight. No. Uh, and, but, but there had to be some defining moments when you went home going, hmm, Oh, there are t lots of defining moments. You know, I mean, almost every night, you know, was a defining moment. And, you know, I just praise God that this was before the days of social media, where the temptation now, if you have a defining moment with someone who thinks differently from you, the temptation is to go and trash them, you know, on, on, on Twitter. But we didn't have that. We had to just I just had to go home and ruminate and and come back the following week with a hot dish. And that was good. You know, that was good. But yes, lots of defining moments. Um, one came when Ken told me that he accepted me as a lesbian, but didn't approve of me. Um, wow. Right. Think work that one out. Um, 
another came when um when well almost every single time i was there it came when at a certain point in the conversation the conversation would just stop and somebody would put a psalter in my hand and the room would you know just sort of erupt in a cappella psalm singing and that was really wild right that was you know that just that just didn't happen in my circle and it was it was fascinating i mean i'm i'm a, i'm a musician i love music i'm a singer i I love, you know, four-part harmony is the most beautiful thing. And it was so disarming because the music was so compelling. And at the same time, the words, quite frankly, some of t- some of, sometimes those words were just disgusting to me. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that happened regularly. And, and then the Bibles would, 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 uh, would, would be opened and, and Ken would read and people would talk and people talked about the Bible and talked uh, they 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 talked about the Bible in a way that I had never heard before. I mean, it wasn't a museum piece. They lean really heavy and hard on it. At the same time, they used it quite clearly as a backdrop for their lives. And and I thought, wow, you know, this is what crazy people do, right? This is insane. I I would never use the Bible as the backdrop for my life. It could kill me. Um, you know, why, why don't I see the danger in it? And, and they don't, uh, you know, so those are some of the things that would happen. But again, you know, before the days of social media, there wasn't, there wasn't really anything to do, but to wrestle with our differences and come back in good faith the next time and talk them out. So uh, I'm making a conclusion. I'm making a jump here. Okay. That your experience with Ken and Floyd and 200 plus meals and patience and love and friendship and dialogue and arm wrestling at some point got you to say, you know, the way I came to know Christ yeah, and to embrace Christ was because somebody opened their door. Yes, exactly. And you said, come on over and let's have a dish and talk. Exactly. So now you've written the gospel comes with a house key, practicing radical, ordinary hospitality in our post Christian world entitled only like a PhD from Ohio state would entitle a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had some help from my friends on that title. I'm just, I'm just having fun. So, but, but it's a great title in that, you know, you're, you're intentional. It's, it's a yeah. practice, right? It's very different. It's radical, Yeah. but it's just ordinary. Have them in your house, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Now, before we go there, I want to read a lyric that you may be old enough. I'm old enough to remember. <laughs> oh, no. It was, on a sitcom. it was on a sitcom, and we heard it every time. We loved the sitcom where everybody knows your name. Yes, and exactly. You want to be where you can see the troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. <sighs> and that was, of course, yep. the song from Cheers. Yep. And in that bar comedy scene, we had all types. We had the psychiatrist, we had the mailman, we had the know-it-all, we had, you know, the goofballs, uh, the the lovers uh, who wouldn't admit they were lovers and so forth and so on. But everyone was accepted. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, Chuck Swindoll called the bar the greatest false substitute for the church. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. And. So let's transition from those lyrics and my crazy uh, connection there. Now, number one, social media is, is a game changer. Yeah. And I would argue it's not helping I connection agree. and community and right. hospitality, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, so give us Dr. Rosario Butterfield's primer on how <laughs> we move from, you know, where we are in our isolation, our instantaneous social media posts, our identity by 
trolling others' social lives and start looking around our neighborhood and our friends and our homes. I wouldn't go where you went with social media, but I'll tell you that I'm living proof that you can be eviscerated on social media and nothing actually happens. And because I actually don't know what people say about me, I can sit down at the table with, with people who would consider themselves to be my fiercest enemies and I can listen and we can disagree and we can break bread and we can laugh and we can find some commonality and we can recognize that our disagreements are very important, but they don't actually rule the whole day. So I think the real issue with social media is it becomes this competing discourse that prevents people from actually receiving one another as image bearers and especially receiving your enemies. Now, I'm not a big fan of agreeing to disagree. I think that's mindless. I don't think that's how I, I just I do. I think it's a mindless way, you know, I, and, and I, so, but I do. I'm a big fan of disagreeing and breaking bread together. And a lot of things happen when you do that. And the most important thing is you rec- you show that you are humbly willing to learn from people who are different from you. Now, don't learn your theology from people who, whose theology is, is heretical, but you may learn any number of other very important things. But the other thing that you do is you show that Christians want to be earthly good to people as well as spiritual good that we care about the whole person and that being um, on opposing sides of a political debate simply doesn't mean we can't sit down and play cards together. Well, let me interject in our social media commentary would be another whole conversation, but my point with social media is the knee jerk reaction to things without substance. And when you're sitting face to face with someone, you're not going to probably say the same thing that you would through Snapchat or Twitter or Instagram or, you know, whatever platform right. a person might use because right. it, there is a sociability to being at a table right, and looking at somebody. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So help, help us uh, stodgy uh, kind of <laughs> wound tight Christians who maybe have a, a real narrow view of right and wrong and the Bible and we're kind of strict conscience and so forth and so on. Yeah. How do, how do we open up without changing our theology right. and welcoming people that are maybe not just lost, but very confused in that lostness? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I, I think it's always good to do a little reality check with your theology. I mean, I think that our theology, um, I'm a Reformed Presbyterian, and we say really? reforming and always reforming. So I think it's great to take stock. And I think it's important to think about what is it about your neighbors that makes you genuinely believe that their sin is more of your problem than your sin. You see, and I think I think if you actually believe in total depravity, if you genuinely believe that that the original sin that you inherit from Adam and that I inherit from Adam, if you genuinely believe that that condemns us, if you genuinely believe that the actual sin that you will commit, probably I will commit before I finish this sentence, uh, really condemns me. And if you actually believe that the indwelling sin, that 
practiced sin nature sin that that Romans seven seventeen. why do I do what I don't want to do it's the law of sin in me sin if you believe that all three of those are condemning I don't think you're going to be quite as fearful of what your neighbors might bring into your home so I think it is good to start with your theology if you believe that um, you are entitled to all this grace and glory that the Bible offers, there's a problem. And so you might want to start there. Well, and my point simply being that, and again, I've been a Christian for almost, you know, 38 years now. And, and trying to get the believer who lives a, a, a fairly defined life, a good life, uh, to open up his or her home to people that think very differently is going to stretch them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because we're used to community groups and Bible study yeah, groups yeah, yeah. and prayer meetings and right. so forth. Yeah, how do you start? Well, you know what? We started with a tragedy. We started with a with an event that exploded in our neighborhood across the street. And Kent and I looked at each other and we said, wow, this is a game changer. We are either going to open these doors wide and put out the Bibles and put on a big, big pot of coffee and listen to our neighbors yell about this or, uh, you know, we're going to draw the, the, the moat and um, lock the doors and delude ourselves into thinking we're better than this. And I really mean it. I really mean it. Um, a neighbor across the street, it turned out he was running a meth lab. We were his only friends in the neighborhood. We were, we were shocked by this. It ripped our neighborhood apart. Um, our, our neighbors thought they liked us and then they realized that we were friends with this guy and they weren't sure what to think. And it made us realize that dining with sinners, loving strangers really meant that we were going to be strange in the eyes of well-meaning Christians. Um, our neighbors, these would be our good neighbors. Also unbelievers who just, just, you know, wanted to live a moral life and not be in trouble with the law. And it was at that moment that we realized that if we wanted to share the gospel in our post-Christian world, that we were going to have to just open the doors and sit down and and let people complain to us about what they perceive to be the things we love uh, dearest in the world. And that move was a really helpful move. It was very helpful for us as Christians. It was helpful for the integrity of our of, of our witness to our children. You know, you do stuff like this and your children will never, ever, ever believe that Jesus is some prop you pull out Sunday morning or Wednesday night. But it also changed our neighborhood and we got to see neighbors come to faith. And it really just started with opening the door and putting on a pot of coffee and saying, okay, there's a, there's something, something happened and it was tragic. Let's talk about it. And then from that first moment, we built in other moments and um, and Kent in some ways became sort of the unofficial pastor of the neighborhood. Um, and, and, and by the time a few months rolled in, our neighbors knew we meant it. We wanted our home to be a place where people could talk about what was going on, why there's evil in the world and what God has to say about it. So it really started for us with looking around and and um, being willing to step into the muck and the mess of a tragedy in our neighborhood. Now, for other people, it, it, it might, it, you know, it doesn't have to be a tragedy. But I think like everything else, if, if you want to, if you want to introduce the gospel into a post-Christian world, 
Home is a great place to do it because it's your home. It's not your workplace. Nobody's telling you what to do. And and it, it, the other the other issue here is that you know it is a post Christian world, and and if we don't live differently now, if if we don't take seriously the um, especially the sexual revolutions change and transformation of the landscape of America, if we don't intervene now, we might just wake up one day and we'll be living like the early church in Rome. I'm not saying it'll be too late because it's never too late in the Lord, but now is a good time to intervene. And if it seems crazy, you know, if it sounds like what I'm suggesting is crazy, I'd like to just bring you back to a time in my life before I was a Christian, 20 some years ago, I was um, lived as a lesbian in New York and the AIDS crisis had just ravaged through my community. Now, this might seem as a surprise, but 20 some years ago, women who identified as lesbian and men who identified as gay did not hang out together. We didn't have a lot in common. Um, for the most part, I and my lesbian friends thought that Men who identified as gay were just a bunch of hedonists and men who identified as gay looked at all of us and said, you guys are just a bunch of social political prigs. But what happened was AIDS. All of a sudden people were dying. And because people were dying, we started living differently. And from that moment onward, the gay community in New York, of which I was a part, started practicing an open door policy. Every night of the week, somebody's home was open for food, for fellowship, to just talk talk about our sadness, um, our differences. We were doing that without the power of the Holy Spirit. We were doing that because we felt the, the power of social oppression. Now, I'm not saying that what I'm suggesting we do today is the same thing, because that was very much liberal communitarianism. But I am suggesting that if we could change our practices and not have God's kind company and help, I know Christians can change our practices. And I know that the thing that's going to change a post-Christian world is conversion. It's one person at a time. And if we're so busy with church programs that we can never interface with the unbelievers with whom we share a block then there's something wrong. Then those church programs are actually getting in the way of something. You early on, and uh, I forget how long ago it was we first had you on the podcast, we first met, but you, you long ago addressed this in I thought it was a remarkable way when you talked about so much of the LGBTQA fill in the blank, mm -hmm. uh, how we have to be kind of kick gloves and embrace yeah. the culture. And, and you said to me, you said, Michael, it's not loving not to call someone to repentance. No, no. But let me, let me just back up just a bit. Before you call somebody to repentance, you need to call somebody to dinner. And, and here's why. I I, I'm agreeing with you, but my point is. Here's uh, why. Just, just, just for our audience, because yeah. uh, I think folks, yeah. folks have got to catch up. You, you've gone a decade in your thinking, if I can use that term. Sure. From where most Christians are still sort of, I mean, yeah. I've got to go talk to my neighbor. Yeah. Okay? And so so what I'm trying to get them to understand is to help to help our family here, if you will. Right. Look, the, the, the long-term goal here is we're all, and you know, I often say, 
ground at Calvary is level. Ain't nobody any better than anyone else. When we stand at the base of Calvary, it doesn't matter what your sin pedigree was or is. You're at the ground of Calvary. We're all right. sinners deserving of hell. And you established right. that earlier. You talked about in Adam. Yeah, absolutely. But I think sometimes it helps the the uh, the Christian who, who wants to be different but doesn't know how to understand the objective isn't, quote, embracing and loving and can't we all get along in a universalism mm-hmm. way. But there's a there's a capital here that we mm-hmm. say, we want to love you because you're made in God's image. Right. We care about one another. We're right. a community. Right. And, oh, by the way, can I talk to you about this Jesus guy and get your yeah. opinion at some point? Yeah, absolutely. But in this day and age, your words cannot be stronger than your relationships. And so the point is to build strong relationships so that you can have those strong words. And I want to tell you how strong these words go for me. These words go this strong. Friend, the gay community is duping you. Neighbor, the gay Christian movement is a farce. Nobody buys it. But in order to actually have strong words, you've got to have a strong relationship, preferably a mug of strong coffee right in front of you (laughs) and a good box of Kleenex. It's going to get messy because whole branches of the evangelical church have bought into this idea of gay Christianity. It isn't, it no longer is the world. Right now we've got the world preaching to the church and big sections of the church believing it. So for your listeners to really grasp what I'm, what I'm saying here, this is a lonely, I mean, this might seem like a pretty lonely go. And, uh, but, but to, to tell your neighbor that the most vital and valuable and dignified thing about them is being made in the image of God. That is radical. That is the, that is really new news. Um, and it used to be that you could go to your neighbor and say, Jesus died for your sins. But you know what? Your neighbor doesn't, doesn't, that's not something people are going to track with. In fact, nomenclature do, doesn't work. Yeah, it, well, yeah, and part of it is because your, your, your unbelieving neighbor doesn't really feel that she needs saving from her sins. She feels that she needs to be saved from you. So, you know, you've got to kind of work this out a little differently, but but I'm talking about having a very strong conversation. The way you do that is you commit yourself to having a very long relationship with your neighbor, not a short one. You don't look to this conversation with your neighbor and think, wow, I better get it all in in the next 32 seconds because this is the last time we talk. No, hopefully you've got some real reason to be coming together weekly just because your neighbors. And honestly, because you are a saved person. So yes, have strong words, but, but make sure you've got strong and regular relationships too. And, and I think that one of the things that, that people don't appreciate in the church is that most of your neighbors, most of your unchurched, unbelieving neighbors are dying of crushing loneliness. Most of them have lives that are compromised by addiction, and also compromised by abuse. And while it might sound very, very nice for you to just issue an invitation, you know, next Tuesday at seven o'clock, that's a tough one for a neighbor who might not know if she's going to be sober or safe next Tuesday at, at, at seven o'clock. So we need to really think about what the barriers are. And that's why I wanted to write this book and, and really think through some of the early church's barriers too. You know, these are our days. 
This isn't an accident that, that we are where we are right now. And Jesus has not left us. He is leading from the front of the line. But I think we do need to reflect on our practices and also maybe reflect also on our, our lack of love for people who are really different than we are. When I asked you earlier about Ken and, and Floor and um, defining moments and your comment just a moment ago about, you know, you're made in the image of God. You've been around people like me. And when you say things like that, when you have the relational capital mm-hmm. and you can say something like that, you can see the wheels turning. Yeah. But, but imagine that especially you're saying this to someone who genuinely believes that their primary identity is their sexual orientation. Or let's say you're saying this to someone to a biological man who primarily believes that he is really and truly and ontologically a woman. And then imagine that what you actually are saying is, no, no, actually, you've got it wrong. God has a dignity that he is holding out that is bigger. And it might be harder to grasp right now, but I'm willing to walk this with you. See, that's what I'm talking about. You're going to lose some skin in this game, but wait till you see what the Lord will do. Because there are people who are literally dying to hear you say that. Take us, uh, take us to some specifics, Rosaria, about um, the local church in the first century. Yeah. And then give us a little bit of a bridge, the way you're sketching this out in your book. Yeah. Uh, just pragmatics. Sure. Uh, to, to some practical applications. Sure, first. absolutely. Well, you know, the early church in the first and second century, they were not... Uh, they weren't the popular people. They weren't the cool people. People didn't didn't gravitate to them because they had great music at their gatherings. Um, they were outcasts. In fact, they lived so differently that outsiders weren't even sure what to make of them. Even the fact that they called each other brother and sister, and then that they would go on to marry people who would be called brother and sister, made the rest of the world wonder what kind of um, illness we had. Uh, really, were were we you know, were we violating the incest taboo? What was wrong with us? We were a set apart people in that first and second century. And we also lived in constant danger. We lived with the knowledge that, that if, if, if the Holy Spirit didn't show up and if the Lord Jesus didn't truly identify with us in, in, in union. And if God, the father hadn't really set us apart from before the foundations of the world, we were the dumbest people on earth, and we were doomed also. So they lived in the vitality and the desperation of the real gospel. But the other thing they did was they lived communally. They knew which house they were gathering at nightly, and gather they did. And they shared what they had, not because of some communist requirements, but because of the love of of brothers and sisters. Um, they expected to see conversions. And then once converted, they expected people's lives to fall apart and they expected to have to step in and help. Uh, they prayed for prisoners. They knew prisoners by name. Their names were Paul and others. And Paul, speaking of Paul, um, you know, imagine what it would have been like to be Paul, to be sitting at a dinner gathering and to be looking into someone's eyes and thinking, you know what? I recognize those eyes. Why do I recognize those eyes? Oh, yes, I murdered your mother. 
And that was the sin, among others, from which the Lord Jesus bled for me. There was never a a thought that we were cleaned up, but there was always a thought that the blood of Christ was capacious, available. It solved all problems and it connected us. It made us a family. And so that gathering together daily meant something. Um, and, And even prior you know, let's go back a little bit and think about just what it would have meant, what it would have been like, um, uh, you know, in those days, those early days of Jesus's teaching, not, 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 not after his death and resurrection, but before it, you know, picture what it was like in the beginning of Mark with Jesus about to be, of all things, baptized. And there he is standing in the water and, and right next to him is a wife beater. And next to the wife beater is a prostitute. And the the list goes on. And there's Jesus making, purposely making himself indistinguishable, completely identifying with us, completely taking the shame of our sin. And then, and then let's, let's imagine him teaching, teaching and those households uh, with those open courtrooms, you know, sometimes people have a hard time imagining how Jesus is reclining at a table one minute, uh, the host is serving an elaborate meal, and the next thing you know, Mary, this the well-known prostitute of the community, is is weeping and covering his feet with her tears and oil and washing it with her hair. And many of us have said, you know, wow, we've thrown a lot of dinner parties and we've never had a prostitute walk through these doors. It just has never happened. How did these things happen? Well, I would say if we go back and look at all of those stories, and I try to do this in the book, we see a similar pattern and we see one we can replicate. And it's this, Jesus didn't wait for strangers to drop through the, you know, the sky. He actually sought them out. And we can do that too. You can seek out strangers. You can do that through orphan care, whole family care through a ministry called Safe Family and Prison Ministry. You can do that. I can do that. And then he embraced those strangers and he made them neighbors. A lot happens when strangers walk through the threshold of your door. And by strangers, I mean real strangers. I don't mean folks from your homeschool co-op you haven't met yet. I mean real strangers. And then once neighbors We see Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the power of the word and through the beckoning of of his call on our lives. We see those neighbors become part of the family of God. And that's the order that we saw in the first century, that we saw in the early church, that we saw when Jesus walked this earth, that we saw after the death and the resurrection. And that's the order that you can see today. You can seek strangers, make them neighbors, and by God's grace, watch them become part of the family of God. And when you see this happen, you will never go back to a Christian life of safety because you won't want to, and your children won't want to either. So help me out with a a suburban home, upper middle class, whatever you want to... Uh, maybe they've got a couple teens, maybe a, a middle school child, younger yeah. child. Um, they're driving in and out of alleyway access to their garage 
or maybe they have a front entrance garage and they've lived in this home for 20 years, 15 right. years, and they've never talked to the people three doors down on the left. Yeah, yeah that's embarrassing. It, 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 let's let's face it. It's much easier if you're new in the neighborhood. But I'll tell you what, there's a great book. It's not my book. It's Dave Runyon's book, The Art of Neighboring. It's a great book. It actually teaches you how to go across the street and say, hi, my name's Rosaria. I've lived across the street for 20 years and I've never really bothered introducing myself. Uh, here's a pie. <laughs> <laughs> and it teaches you, the book teaches you, we use that book, Kent and I use that book uh, early on. Um, it teaches you how to, you know, how to, how to get, get connected with the other Christians on the block who feel just as big of heels for their lack of love for their neighbors and to get together, repent of your sin together, pray over it, start a public Christian witness. See, that's the key. The key is, and I know this sounds crazy. But it's the key is inviting everybody to something. And the key is connecting with other Christians in your neighborhood and bringing in, importing them, if you will, other Christians from your church to make it work. The key is going to your next door app and inviting 300 households to an outdoor barbecue. And uh, in faith, you know, the key is also praying before you do such a crazy thing that the gospel will go forward. And, and the key is remembering the gospel doesn't go forward by osmosis. So a certain point in this conversation, you are going to have to do this very awkward thing. And that's change the conversation, you know, from egg salad to eternity, as it were. And at a certain point, and you know what we do in our house, you don't have to do it our way, but the, what we do in our house is that you know we have family devotions every night. Kent leads us in family devotions every night. So at a certain point in our open neighbor meals at our home, the dinner plates get brought up to the kitchen, the mugs of coffee get sent down through the long lines at the table, along with the mugs of coffee come Bibles. And at a certain point, Kent says, we're going to move into family devotions now. This is the time where our family reads a, passion, a, a portion of the Bible, and we pray and we ask God's help to give us wisdom to uh, discuss and to understand some of the very things we've been talking about at this table. And we also pray uh, for his grace and for his spirit to be among us. So uh, anybody, you know, want to join us? I mean, you know, and, and Kent's not, you know, we're not obnoxious. If people need to leave, they can leave. But you know what? Most people stay. But this is the move. This is the moment where, uh, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable. This is the moment where your neighbors look at you like, oh, you really are kind of a freak, aren't you? And this is the moment where Christians need to realize that being uncomfortable and being inconvenienced is not a bad thing. Take a deep breath, lean in and get used to it because this is the new normal. But this is how it's the old way, really. This is how we invite Jesus into the conversation, not to stop it, but to deepen it. And this is what we do at our house every night. Now, you have people in your home how many times a week? Well, it you know, it really depends. It, it varies. Now, we're ready for people every night, and I'll explain a little bit why that is. But um, 
we don't always have people every night. We almost always have one or two people from the church every night, and especially singles from the church. Um, we don't always have people from our neighborhood. From our neighborhood, we always have people um, one night a week. And that's we've just designated a night as an open house. We call it soup and prayer. Um, I, we advertise it on the Nextdoor app. Our neighbors come in. Sometimes they bring food. Sometimes they bring friends. And it's just been a, a great time for us to really get to know how to help people in our neighborhood and how to pray for people, but also a way for people in our neighborhood to get to know why Christians believe the things we do. Why, when we look at the evil in the world, we're not scared. Why we believe that Christians have a very realistic understanding of both human nature and God's purposes, and why we just don't buy some of the um, public discourse that's available about Christians being hate mongers. Um, and, and by doing this once a week, um, one of the things that's happened is it, it's, it's taken on a life of its own, really. And we've seen conversions. We've seen um, opportunities for Christians to bless and help um, old people and young people and um, we've also just, as I said, developed a, a clear sense of how to be um, to be genuinely Christian neighbors in a in a neighborhood where it's really easy to not know each other, where it's really easy to just drive in, close the garage door, um, you know, flip on Facebook and just live in another world. It's really helped us learn how to live in this world. Okay, finally, I want to ask you about your last chapter. You talk about feeding the 5,000 nuts and bolts and beans and rice. So walk us through that. Give us a little uh, a high view of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, you know, in some ways, at a certain point, um, with a, a, a crisis in our neighborhood, um, Kent and I looked at each other and said, you know, wow, we, we have a great opportunity to really open the doors of our home and live openly as Christians in this hurting community. And so we are going to designate and budget to do this. Um, we're going to make it clear to our neighbors um, in word and deed that we really want to walk through that through with them uh, uh, over this crisis that's just happened. And, and we want to do it openly. So it basically means that every, um, Every morning, I'm up early uh, listening to sermons and chopping vegetables. Um, I probably spend about maybe four hours a day in food prep. Um, now, as I said before, those are four hours a day I will never spend on social media. So I have that time. Um, my children are, are stakeholders in this. They, uh, they know that they can invite their friends over anytime. And that we will be there for their friends as well. And um, and our neighbors who are part of churches that are really different from our church, they know that we can we can talk, we can pray, we can put our cards on the table. Um, we don't have to be afraid of having to make sure that everything all lines up because we're not trying to put a, a church together. We're trying to put a neighborhood together. Um, and so every night at about five o'clock, sometimes earlier, uh, depending upon, uh, you know, w whether a, ch a neighbor needs childcare, 
But at a certain point, uh, neighbors start to filter in. And you know what? That's a great time for me to stop homeschooling. But it really is. I think that it's so tempting when you're homeschooling to do it for to just belabor it for 12 hours a day and drive yourself and your kids crazy. So, so you know what? Our day ends at five. Yes, my teenagers have homework and they work that out, but for the little ones, we end at five. And so neighbors start to walk in and you know what? My house is a disaster. I've been homeschooling all day. There's, uh, there's laundry, unfolded laundry on the dining room table. And you know, especially my single women neighbor friends, they know exactly what to do with unfolded laundry on the dining room table. <laughs> you shove it back in the dryer. That's what you do. And you know, I thought you were going to say they would fold it for well, you. <laughs> some of them do. So actually, one, uh, sadly, she she's folds it better than I do and knows exactly where it goes after that. But but others just do the other sensible thing, and that shove it back in the dryer. Let's get on with things. Um, everybody knows how to set the table, and at that point, dinner is mostly ready. But you know what? If we're missing something, it's five o'clock, and you know, if you're if you really are hankering for a green salad, and you notice that I don't have one, then run, go get one. <laughs> you know? There's plenty of room to help, and then we set the tables and we open the doors, and you know, sometimes we run out of chairs. That is not a big deal. We put the old people at the chairs and other people know how to sit on the floor. You know, God gave you a behind for a reason. If you can get up and sit down from the floor, you can do it. We also have piano benches and exercise balls, and those work out great, too. And um, one of the things we've discovered is that people will not die when they discover cat hair on the couch. They won't die of it, but they may die of crushing loneliness. So one of the things we learned early on, right after Obergefell, is that so many of the arguments that bolstered gay marriage were arguments about loneliness. And Kent and I looked at each other and said, this is a wake-up call for us. And we made it very clear to all of our friends who struggle against same-sex attraction that they are welcome every day in our home, that ours is the home that you come to every night for dinner and for prayer. And you know what? You know what? If you need to move in here during holidays, which are hard and scary, then do it. Because if you are fighting against sin, God's way, you are a hero of the faith and not someone to be held at arm's length. You know, the gay rights movement works from the position that people need visibility. But that's not what the that is not what the gospel gives you. The gospel gives you belonging. And so the, the scripture verse that really was at the, the center of this book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, is is in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. And it's where Peter says to Jesus, See, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, Yes, you've you've lost everything. Um, and you're gonna lose more too. Um, but you're going to gain a hundredfold of family. And, you know, that hundredfold is not going to fall from the sky. It's going to come from me and from you, or it's not going to come at all. This would be a very different conversation. This would be a very different Christian world 
if our unbelieving neighbors looked across the street and saw our Christians' homes and said, you know, I don't know what it is about that house, but it's different. People aren't lonely. People don't fall through the cracks. Uh, you know, when I lived in Syracuse, New York, you knew who had the best snowblower. And you just wanted to be that person's friend. Let's face it, you just did. <laughs> I, I just often wonder, what would it be like if church membership translated in the same way for people? If, if our unbelieving neighbors looked across the street and said, well, I don't know what it is about that house, but nobody falls through the cracks. And even in a day where we live with a a epidemic of crushing loneliness. Nobody's lonely there. What is it about that house? Well, here's what it's not. It's not works righteousness. It's not the spending five hours a day or four hours a day chopping vegetables. It's actually none of that. It's repentance and belief. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, with whom we have union every day. And it's his gospel going forward through our feeble desire to make, to make friends in unlikely places. And I am convinced that this is how we change the world. I am convinced that there are millions of people converted under these kinds of ministries and that I'm not alone out there. But for the last six years, people have asked me to share my testimony. And when I get to the part about Ken and Floyd Smith and what they put up with with me, so many Christians just walk away rich, young, ruler style. Mm. And that's got to change. That's got to change. We don't have to fear sin. Jesus has already given us the solution. Dr. Rosario Butterfield author of The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and then her newest book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. Rosario, it's always great to talk to you. I could talk to you for hours upon oh, hours. Thank and, you, um, Thanks for your time, and maybe one day I'll, I'll show up on the doorstep, but I won't sit on the floor. I, okay. I'm an old guy with Are a back. Are you an old guy? Okay, that's fine. Well, we have a rule. If you're over 50, you do get a chair with a back. I appreciate so that. So I'll be sure to put you in the old geezer, you know, uh, seat. We'll, we'll, we'll arrange for that. No problem. Totally. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks for your time. Thank you, brother. Lord bless you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.